Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Changes with me, Annie McManus. That's right, we have a very special episode for you. It's a really exciting one this week. My guest is Orla Doherty. Orla is an award-winning TV producer who spent over 500 hours at depths of 1,000 metres in three different oceans as the producer of The Deep and the series finale of Blue Planet 2. Orla is a very quiet record-breaker, rule-breaker, explorer and a person who, in her work and the impact of it, has managed to change how an entire country looks at the way they live. Think of every kind of moon landing, every space explorer, and then think of Orla in a submersible at the bottom of the ocean, sitting in the black with a cameraman filming everything that she sees and putting that together into the most beautiful television. Blue Planet 2 is the fourth most watched TV show ever in the UK. It was the most watched TV programme in 2017. It's won multiple television awards and won hearts and minds and raised awareness, as I said, of plastic pollution to a point where people call it the Blue Planet Effect. There was recently a newly narrated programme called Planet Earth, a celebration on BBC One, which brings together the most astounding stories from Planet Earth 2 and Blue Planet 2. Orla is now an executive producer on Ocean Explorers, a series combining landmark natural history with ocean exploration for National Geographic and is producing an episode of the forthcoming Frozen Planet 2 series about the Antarctic. It's safe to say that she has a unique perspective on our planet, its oceans and sustainability. She's going to tell us all about the change that she went through as a person when she was 30 years old that led her to devote her adult life to oceans and the life within them. Big thanks to Mercedes, who supported the making of this special episode. Their Mercedes-Benz A-Class is now available as a plug-in hybrid and has an all-electric range of up to 44 miles. All right, time to welcome to the podcast, Orla Doherty. Orla Doherty, hello and welcome to Changes. Thanks, Annie. Very nice to be here. Uh, Really great to have you on. So you've kind of devoted your adult life to oceans and I wanted to start by asking you what memories if any do you have of oceans and and the impact of oceans and the power of the oceans on you as a child (laughs) Um, not very uh pleasant ones actually so in in my childhood we used to go back to Ireland in the summer for our summer holidays and uh (laughs) The ocean on the west coast of Ireland is, I mean, it's very beautiful. It's the very beautiful Atlantic, but Mm. it's A, freezing cold, um, and B, for us, uh, uh, there was one summer where it just was filled with jellyfish, and my brother decided to go and get some jellyfish out of the ocean and then try and chase us up the beach with them. Uh, So (laughs) to me, as a child... (laughs) The ocean was not a good place. And the other the other encounters that we would have with it was in the ferry crossing across from right. Hollyhead to Dunleary, which even in the middle of summer can be as rough as blazes. Um, so, so yeah, the ocean was, was a place to stand on the beach and look out at and think, oh, that looks very pretty, but don't get in it and try not to be on it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that, that, attitude to the oceans changed quite drastically didn't it for you when you were 30 and this is this is 
such a, a, a brilliant change and I'd love you to talk us through it if you don't mind. So I was turning 30, uh, I'm, I'm a twin, and me, my sister and her husband decided to meet in Asia at, at the time of our 30th birthday and learn to scuba dive together. And for me, this was prompted by a great friend of mine in, in England who had been an avid scuba diver for years, and he told me to give it a go because he just had this hunch I'd really like it. So the three of us learnt to scuba dive together in um, Thailand, and we, when we, you know, you do some academic stuff in a classroom for a bit, and then, and then your instructor brings you out to the water, puts this contraption in your mouth and this tank on your back, mask on your face, fins on your feet, and off you go. You go underwater, and I, we, I went underwater and saw this thing called a coral reef and these Technicolor extraordinary characters these fish and these bright colors of the corals and sponges and i was having real problems equalizing which is you know you've got to clear your ears and and it, and it was all really hectic but i just was looking around me go what is this where am i am i still here on planet earth i i could not believe what i was seeing and um we came up from that first dive and and I was sort of speechless and, you know, regulator flying out of my mouth. Going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And my sister said, yeah, that was nice, wasn't it? And we just had this completely different reaction. I mean, she, not that she didn't think it was really beautiful. But for me, I was I was gone on that very first encounter. It's like, right, how do I now spend the rest of my life here underwater with this? Because this is gobsmacking. And what was your life like at the time? You know, What were you doing in your life back in England? Um, I was I was making television. So I was a, a series producer in, in London um, at this wonderful company, Talkback, with wonderful people, making really lovely television. So lots of stuff with Kevin MacLeod, um, yeah. Bits of Grand Designs, uh, a series about climbing tall buildings and architecture, some really fun stuff with fashion, like fun, fun, popular TV. But that just sort of went out the window as soon as I went underwater. So so how do you then go from doing your first scuba dive, seeing Coral Reef up close to then to then doing what you did next? I'm really interested in the moves that you made because it's an extreme life change. Yeah. So this was this was all happening around Christmas, January, when I learned to scuba dive. Okay. I had a year's a year's commitments to make two series in in the coming year. And I came home from that trip and I was I was really discombobulated because I knew something really fundamental had happened and I couldn't quite express it. So there was an awful lot of uh, kind of, you know, sobbing and wailing and what am I doing with my life? And then I finally sort of put a plan together and I said, right, I'm not going to bail on my commitments. I'm going to do what I've promised to do. I'm going to make this series with Mm. um, the fashion thing. And then I'm going to make this series with Kevin about climbing buildings. I've got a three week gap in between the two. And in that three week gap, I'm going to go back to Thailand, to that coral reef, to that very place where I think I've had this great epiphany. And I'm going to sense check. And if I put my head underwater and I feel the same, then I'm going to do something about it. If I put my head underwater and go, oh, well, that's very nice, but hey ho, whatever, then I will just sort of carry on with the life that is laid out before me. Well, I put my head underwater in that June 
Uh, and I said, no, no, this is definitely where I want to be. Yep, yep, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm leaving London. So I came back from that trip with the intention to make a plan to leave. And I did. What happened next? Um, well, I had to figure out where I was going, really. Um, I Yeah, I, I stuck my finger in an atlas. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, because I think I was kind of, I, I needed something to guide and focus me. So I, I stuck my finger in an atlas and I said, right, wherever that is, I'm going to go there. And it landed on Sydney. And what that then prompted me to do was go ahead and get a work visa to get a job in Sydney. And I didn't quite know how that was going to help me get to the coral reefs, but at least I'm in right. a country that's got the Great Barrier Reef. That's, yeah. that's a good start. So I put all of that in motion. And then... I also signed up to go stop in the Philippines for three months on my way to Australia to do a voluntary, um, you know, all these wonderful um, NGOs that do, uh, you know, training, you, you go out, you volunteer, you start collecting data, you're studying coral reefs, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So I did, I signed up to do that. I had a plane ticket to the Philippines and then onwards to Australia. And the week before I was going to get on that plane to the Philippines, I happened to meet someone who happened to know someone who yeah. happened to be on a boat in Indonesia studying coral reefs. And, you know, this is back in the days when really the internet didn't quite exist, it took 20 minutes to load a picture. Yeah. I made a connection to this guy who was wafting around um, Indonesia on this boat. And it turned out that this was a boat that was mapping and studying coral reefs in the remote islands of the Pacific Ocean. So I went to meet a woman who was running it, who lived in America, but happened to be in London, happened to be three blocks from my office. And this is... Oh my God, it's all so serendipitous. I know, I know. Actually, as I'm saying, it sounds a bit ridiculous, but this is all, this is all true. So I went to meet her. I packed up the last belongings from my flat. I was driving them out to my parents' house. I had a car full of stuff, drove into town, put my car on a meter, ran into this building and I said, I've got 20 minutes. I don't have any more coins. So we got straight to the heart of it. We stood in front of this map of the ocean. And she said, so when you finish in the Philippines, the ship will probably be in Papua New Guinea. So you could come down and meet it. And I said, yeah, great idea, fantastic. Didn't know this woman from Adam, didn't know anything about this boat, but suddenly I found myself pledging to go to a country I'd really kind of never heard of. And <laughs> um, and so I did. That's what I did. Never made it to Australia. What did your, par did your parents think of this? <laughs> um, um, I, well, wouldn't it be lovely to ask them? <laughs> um, I, I think they thought she's having an early midlife crisis. Uh, She's worked very hard. She needs a bit of a break. Let's let her go. Um, I mean, I, the thing is, I didn't leave saying I'm, I'm off now and I won't be back for 10 years. I left saying I'll be back in a year. Yeah. So I yeah. don't think I don't think anyone was kind of, you know, hearing the alarm bells. Well, actually, no, they probably were. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone maybe but yeah. you. You were like, like, I'm off. Yeah. <laughs> looking at furiously looking at Papua New Guinea yeah. on a map going yeah. okay <laughs> yeah so so what was the ship like and was did you stay on that ship for that long for 10 yeah, years yeah I stayed on on that ship for seven years and then um wow. and then we 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 had to give that ship 
a, a sort of a way back and so we so we got a different ship um and that then i stayed on that one for two years but yes with the same organization um wow. and it was um it was it was extraordinary and and beautiful and kooky as heck i mean it was a this is a, a black hull um built out of cement by you know a bunch of kind of uh semi fruit loops in the 70s in san francisco and sort of set out to sea like a really idealistic um bunch of daydreamers but who built a ship that has stood the test of time and is still out there sailing Wow. And it was, you know, the mission was to go and and get to grips with what is happening to the coral reefs of this world. So we've got a boat. We can go to places that people can't get to. If you're just going to ping from shore to get out to a reef, you're very limited in how far you can go by, you know, how mm. far can your boat go? Well, our boat could go anywhere, anytime. So that's what we did. We went to the most remote edges of countries we went to islands that you know none of us had ever heard of till we got there and really got to grips with what is happening to their reefs and in in the course of all of the length of time i was there we got back to several of our key study sites to see a change over time so it wasn't just a what does this reef look like today it was like right. well how does it look three years later five years later yeah so it was amazing what was the when you look back at that kind of 10 year period of your life is there a moment there that you will take with you to the grave moments of danger yeah yes yeah there yeah we had a couple of um look if you if you if you choose to live at sea and you choose to put your uh your 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 health, your safety, your life in in the hands of the ocean. Then you're then you're choosing to take on uh, forces that are way bigger than than you, than us, the, the, you know, the team of people. And mm. and we, I think we were, you know, we were also experiencing um, weather events, storm events. You know, we, it make, that makes it sound like you know we just sort of went out there and did our thing. We didn't. We were meticulous in our. The, the seamanship, the learning how to safely right. be a part of a team that can keep a ship safe in in anything. That was our fundamental um, driver. Mm. The, the coral reef work we did on top of all of that. But if you can't keep your ship safe and everyone on it, then then you're in serious trouble. Sure. You know, we yeah. encountered cyclones where we shouldn't have had cyclones and this is all you know climate change at work we were we, we you choose in cyclone season you go to the cyclone free area well there's kind of no such thing anymore really um so we got caught out by the onset of cyclones um we got caught in storms that nearly had us uh, uh you know wrecked on the reef in the middle of nowhere so yeah we we lost a mast in the middle of the ocean how do you lose a mast five... the wind blew it away well, <laughs> no <laughs> well well it, well yes indirectly yes we we were in a big storm yeah. two days after the storm the storm had died down but we were you're left the wind is gone but you're left with a really lumpy sea so the ship is just kind of bouncing up and down like a yo-yo without sure. the thrust Right. Uh, wind in your sails to give you any momentum so you're just crashing all over the place and clearly there was a weakness somewhere in where the mast went through the deck and it it just it couldn't take the all the strain anymore so it just 
severed and went overboard. But then way worse than that was the fact that we then were bouncing around in an ocean with a you know, giant mast, sharp metal pole that could have punctured our slightly fragile cement hull. So then the next crisis was we've got to get rid of this mast. We've got to cut it loose or it's actually going to put a hole in our ship and we're going to sink. How did and we're you get rid of the a mast? thousand miles offshore. I've got visions of you all with like chainsaws trying to... <laughs> um, the incredible Michelle went over the side of the ship, hung on for dear life. He had to put a mask on because he, he had to go under the waves because we were bouncing like this with a with a hacksaw. Wow. Cutting through everything, all of the metal um, lines that were still holding that mask to the ship. And it took him about an hour and a half. And we were all just standing over the side watching, going, you know, we, we're either going to sink or we're not. Oh, yeah. You spoke uh, when we asked you some questions before this about a moment of realisation for you that you were that you were kind of done for. And when I say done for, I mean there was an acceptance that you were you belong to the sea, basically. The moment when you disembarked that ship at one point. Can you talk me yeah. through that? Yeah, so that was, that was at the end of that rather incredible right. voyage. So How long it, had you been at sea then? Four and a half months. Right. So that's, you know, with literally leaving an island and setting out into the North Pacific Ocean and then only seeing ocean for four and a half months and then finally arriving into Seattle with, you know, a missing mast and uh, a deadline to get to LA to do a thing and, you know, like serious pressure. Um, and we we tied up to a dock and, you know, there's 14 people on the boat and 13 of them are practically pushing each other out of the way to get off the ship. They just cannot wait to get on land. And I just found myself completely pulling back and looking at the people on the land you know people that I love very dearly standing on the land thinking yeah I, I sh yeah I guess I should yeah I guess I should get off the ship and I just didn't want to go I actually I didn't want to yeah. I didn't want to I didn't want it to end I didn't want that voyage to end I didn't want to admit that I had to get back on land <laughs> What's it like then, having been on on water for that long, to then have to be on dry land for a bit? How how did you find that you adapted to that? I it took it took a, a long time, and actually, I I sort of came back to dry land, but I came back to dry land in in, in a place that felt closer to where I'd been living on the ocean. So I yes. on the on the way home from the Pacific. Um, I, I stopped in Indonesia and sort of kind of did some rehabilitation, not consciously, but um, living living on land, but in a in a world that just felt closer to where I'd spent the last nine years by that point. Um, and that and that was a, a really again, again really discombobulating um, because I, I was now thinking about you know we closed our expedition down we'd we'd done what we needed to do we we discovered you know we proved the trajectory that coral reefs are on um, there was no point in carrying it on but I now needed to consider well what what's next what happens I went to Indonesia and, and we we kind of tried to make a life there but it just didn't it just didn't work out of course it didn't work out I was I was completely you know I'd, I'd lost um what had held 
nine years of my life together it had come to an end and so a transition needed to happen it took a while it took a long time was there a moment then of epiphany when you realized that you could marry your tv experience with this love of oceans that that came later really that that yeah that really came later so i came i, I stopped in indonesia and then finally made it back to england mm. um moved back in with my parents which i recommend absolutely every single 40 year old to do it was the most delightful time ever and completely um transform my relationship with my parents it was so so magical and special wow. um and just sort of by default fell back into television because I sort of just didn't really know what else to do actually um so I I got in touch with my old old boss and um she said oh fantastic you're back great could you start next week uh so I did and I was in a state of genuine culture shock and also a little bit useless to an entertainment industry because I had no clue about um culture I mean, I guess social media will have exploded in that time and changed the course of communication. (laughs) Completely. And and it's not, you know, living on a ship in the Pacific, I had no clue. So in fact, they used to play a game with me, true or false, and they'd tell me something and say, do you think this happened in the last 10 years? True or false? And that's how I learned the Queen Mother was dead. Oh, my God. I didn't know. (laughs) So it was really hilarious. I mean, not hilarious. It was actually quite useless. Yeah. It took a while. It took so I, I sort of I went back into TV and was just doing um, stuff, but really, you know, kind of putting build, building myself back together at the same time. Mm. It took about two or three years to finally go. Okay, do you know what? I still do like this process of making television, but I'm I don't care about what I'm making. I don't. I'm not invested in it at all. What yeah. I care about is, you know, out there. How am I going to put this together? And um, you know, that's when, as it happens, uh, there was a, a series being put together, which was going to be a sequel to, to Blue Planet. So let's talk about Blue Planet 2. So you spent and even, you know, talking about the kind of remoteness of being on a boat for 10 years or so. You kind of went even, even more extreme in terms of that by spending something like 500 hours, please correct me if I'm wrong, deep, deep, deep under the ocean. 1000 meters three different oceans what yeah. what's it like can you describe to me what it's like when you're that deep like what what are you in what vehicle are you in who are you with what does it feel like so all of that time that i actually spent down there i was in a, a submersible it's a small acrylic bubble so it's just it's just a sphere um, and it's not very big, so so I would be sat here on on the right hand side. Um, my camera operator would be sat to my left, and then behind us and between us would be the pilot. So it's three of us um, scrunched into a, a small little space, kind of you know really no wider than the desk I'm sitting at right now. You 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 get in on on the ship. Uh, so you sort of clamber in through through the hatch at the very top of the of the bubble. You get in, and then you you effectively get hoisted off the back end of the ship, so off the stern, and dropped into the water. And then at that point, you're sat at the surface, and you're in, you've got this amazing perspective yeah. because you're in this you're bone dry, you're very comfortable, 
and you're literally at that interface between okay this is where we belong in air where we can breathe and we're about to go under into that water and we're going to go down and down and down and down and it's a, it's a really magical moment and it yeah. can be really beautiful or it can be really sort of seasick inducing because you're tossing about in waves but you've got to sit there for a while while some last checks are done and then you start to descend and as you descend you know they blast some air out of the tank so that you start to sink and you start to lose contact with that world above so that's it bye bye we're now humans sitting still very comfortably in our air pocket but we're going to a place where we absolutely don't belong sure. and for me the magic is that every single time we would descend i would genuinely have no no idea about what we were going to see on the next eight hours nine hours ten hours however long we were going to be able to eke out our dive for because we just still know so little about the deep ocean and it's so unbelievable it's it's mind-bendingly massive we actually can't compute i can't compute what what it means what the deep ocean means i mean it's 90 percent of the living space on earth is deep sea so kind of you know try try and compute that i still can't it's it's just absolutely incredible it's such a significant part of our planet and yet it's so rare that you can actually get into it because we shouldn't be there we can't breathe down there and the pressure would literally slice us to smithereens so th there was always this sense of oh my god i wonder what we're going to see today it could be nothing which is you know not ideal but it, it happened many many times or you could see something utterly extraordinary or an animal that you think belongs in the surface ocean and yet you see it at 800 meters deep like a mako shark or a marlin i mean and then the light goes it, so it gets darker and darker and darker it starts to get colder because yeah. the deeper you go the colder the water gets and you that starts to um change the temperature inside the sphere and then you wait what can you hear you hear uh, the pilot uh, chatting to to the surface, so he's on he's on comm. So you hear his half, and then you hear like <laughs> of the you know what's coming back down uh, from the surface. You hear the thrusters of the submersible, so you hear like whirring electric sounds. Um, you hear sort of bits of the life support mechanism in operation. So you know what's kind of keeping us down there. You hear you hear the the sphere shrinking as the pressure starts to build on it. So you hear kind of um, sort of squeaking. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Did you enjoy it down there? Yes. And I, I, I never wanted to leave. And I do I I keep I do keep saying I you know I want someone to just make me a submersible that I can live in, go down and not really not you know I think through lockdown I've proved I really don't need to be with other humans I would quite happily get my own little submersible if someone could drop off some food packages now and again or figure out how I could live without it and I would just spend the rest of my life in the deep sea pootling around exploring because I think there are things down there that we won't be able to believe when we find them. It strikes me that there's a real similarity with going up going down like the idea of just just how you are the vehicle you're in how it feels the sound all of that yeah yeah. Um, does it ever feel like that, that you're kind of yeah. going to... Another uh, planet. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
there yeah and there was one actually there was one very very specific day where i really felt that we'd um we were filming in in the gulf of mexico and uh i was working with this really wonderful scientist mandy joy and she took me to a place uh she, we were there to film this brine pool which is the crazy lake at the bottom of the ocean that's toxic and it's you know really really super seen in in blue planet 2 where this eel goes in and it kind of goes you know doesn't like it anyway while we were filming at the brine pool mandy said all there's another place that i think you'd really like let's go and have a look at it and what she led us to, it was 100 miles to the west, but I totally trusted Manny and said, let's go. I said, can you show me a picture? And she said, no, I don't have one. <laughs> so she sort of described what might happen. So I said, let's go. We dived at this place. And when we got to the bottom, these giant bubbles at the size of basketballs of methane were erupting out of what looked like a deep sea desert. So we, we came down, 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 down to about 750 meters. There's nothing, we're just looking at kind of a sandy bottom and I'm kind of thinking, oh dear, shouldn't have brought the ship yeah. over here. This is a bit of a waste of time. And suddenly these methane bubbles start flying out of the sea floor in these great big plumes. It was just the most extraordinary thing. And it was this methane volcano erupting Wow. which is a thing that scientists know about but I don't know that anyone has ever actually seen it happen with their own eyes and been down there in submersibles and filming it in you know glorious four and a half k it was just amazing 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 when we came back up at the end of that day so we're, we're, we're coming back up so we're ascending but for me I truly felt like hang on a minute I, we should be coming down because we should be coming out of the sky because it feels to me like we really have been to another planet and mm. I don't understand why we're coming up because really we should be just like landing on the deck of the ship not being hoisted back <laughs> up to it it was it was extraordinary it was just that was for me one of the most extraordinary days in the deep sea what about um living things have you ever seen anything down there that has never been seen before or that you've always wanted to see and and saw yeah yeah um i the the minute i got to grips with what what stories can we tell in the deep sea what what creatures can we meet what creatures can we you know communicate to an audience around the world i fell in love with this um the six gill shark yeah. which is this you know ancient 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 creature long lived um beautiful in many ways you could think of it as a monster of the deep but it's not it is such a beautiful animal it's so stately and it just slithers around this deep sea floor in this desert looking for something to to feed on and it's kind of it's almost a miracle that they can survive down there but they do and um it was I was on my very, very first sub dive. We were just testing, testing, you know, the systems and looking at what how this could really work for us in, in the context of Blue Planet 2. And um, we were, you know, an hour into the dive and we'd seen some pretty corals and some little fish and things. Um, and I was being really flippant and I said, oh, for crying out loud, where's the six skill shark? Two minutes later, yeah. in comes a six-gill shark. And I yeah. I just, I kind of fell over, really, because this was the first time I was meeting this amazing creature of the deep, and uh, I fell in love with it, and then it just became my sort of totem animal for the, for the whole series. Really, really stunning. 
tell me, Orla, is, I know this is a very ignorant question, mapping and the idea of the ocean floor being mapped, is it all mapped or is there, is there areas that aren't mapped? Well, it depends what you mean by map because mapping means, you know, do we sort of know roughly what's down there? And yeah, we do sort of know roughly what's down there. But right. then you start, then you have to think about, well, how much, how much detail do we have? And we truly have more detailed maps of Mars than we do of our own deep sea floor. Because that's where, you know, attention and effort has gone and technology has has led us to. So there are parts of the ocean where, yeah, we know there's a sort of a, a bit of a bump at this kind of a depth, but it's very approximate. You know, some of the stuff we're working with still comes from ancient mariners going out there with plumb lines and making, you know, hand drawing mm. nautical charts. So that there is still so much work to be done. And what that means to me is, well, that, that just simply means there's so much more to discover because it's like we have a, you know, like an impressionistic view of what's down there. It's all a little bit blurry. It's all a little bit pixelated. And when you start to really refine and get into the high resolution, that's when you discover, oh, oh wow, there's a volcano there. Who knew? You know, there's just stuff mm. down there that like the brine pool, like the mud volcano, you know, in our, in our almost limited exposure to the deep sea that we had, we were finding things and experiencing things that feel new and incredible. That's like a pinprick, literally a pinprick mm. in the deep sea. Mm. What, why do you think it is that we as a species, as humans, want to go up rather than down? Like, what is it about that? I don't know. I think everybody's wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. That's that's being very flippant. I don't. I think, you know, I, I also I get the draw of space. You know, I would happily go on a mission to Mars as well. Um, I really I understand what all, all of that's about. But um, I think what's I think what's becoming more and more apparent over time is. But what goes out, what goes on out there in space and what we discover out there, that's not necessarily going to improve the future of this planet mm. and isn't, you know, haven't we got our priorities a little bit mixed up? Shouldn't we actually put a little bit more attention on our own planet and trying to get to grips with what's happening here and learn more about mm. it, understand it better, protect it better, safeguard its future better? With the filming of, of Blue Planet 2, did you go into that, you know, especially that final episode that you looked after, did you go into that with the intention of it being a, a kind of warning as such to, to us about what is happening to our oceans? Yeah, it's, it's, we're no longer in a time where we can, you know, just, just be telling amazing stories of the natural world without really also... Yeah widening that that angle and saying okay well if you look a little bit beyond this this is this is the impact we're having I mean it you know coming from where I come from from spending 10 years at sea and seeing our human imprint all over in in places where humans aren't even living and I was seeing you know plastic washed up on beaches hundreds of miles from human habitation sharks being finned in places where you know kind of they sh well sharks just shouldn't be fin you know just seeing it's just seeing it over and over again 
and bringing that uh, like visceral experience and, and knowledge and mental data bank of everything I'd seen and encountered and all of us going out to film for Blue Planet 2, wherever we went, wherever you go in the ocean, you, ca you can't not see us, even if we're not actually there, even in the deep sea. You know, we've, we've put stuff down there, we've, we've caused problems down there, you know, we're, we're everywhere. And so it just would have been, it just would have been wrong to not also share some of that to, to give the balance. Were you surprised by the impact that, you know, the Blue Planet effect had on, on, on this country? It felt vast. Yeah, we were all, um, you know, blown away you you pour your your um heart and soul and everything you've got into making something like that and it's a long um intense process and and you hope for people to see it and for for people to take away something from it but but the response that that we had just it was it was kind of at times utterly overwhelming and yet at the same time, that's, that's, that's why I do it. That's why we do it. We do it to have the message be received. And uh, in this case, our message was received. And it was a message, you know, that we all worked so hard to craft, to really think about what are we saying and why, and to, to, ha to, be, to then have that message be heard. It's why we do what we do. It's why I do what I do. It's mad when you think about it now, you know, this kind of voyage these voyages of discovery that you made um, then having such a profound impact on the human race, not just in the UK, but globally, and like, you know, contributing to how people look at the way that they live. It's so huge what you did. It's so huge. It's bigger than any trip to the moon because what you're actually doing is changing how people live. Well, that's... It's mad. Uh, you're absolutely right, but remember, Annie, that very first trip to the moon, you remember that very first picture of our planet from yeah. that trajectory, and yeah. what did that show? That showed that we live on a blue planet, actually. So, you know, it could be that there's, there's, yeah. there is a need yeah. for that extra... <laughs> off our planet view back to see, you know, there's this stuff we're learning from satellite work about, again, about our impact. We're seeing stuff from space that is really difficult to see here, you know, at ground level. Um, so maybe it does take a, a magical combination, but of course my bias is always mm. going to be to get the people in the ocean. Yeah. Would you say, I mean, looking at how we can, what changes you would like to see uh, be affected in the future in terms of our planet and our climate, what would you like to see happening that you think can actually make a difference? For me, it's it's the it's we've got to step up the pace here. We're right. We're we, you know we're we're in we are in an emergency. We're it's yeah. now being talked about the climate emergency, um, but it, it just still feels to me like we're not responding to it like it's an emergency, and um, that it still feels like oh well you know well we'll we'll, we'll get to that well kind of our time to get to that is truly now and if we don't it's you know it's not looking that great particularly for the ocean um which is obviously where my attention is and and the the part of our natural world that i feel like i have a grasp of yeah so for me it's, it's about really picking up the pace and and uh 
acting like this really is an emergency. I mean, the, you know, the planet is literally on fire right now. The wildfires are off the scale. Um, mm. And it's it's just it's joining those dots and seeing cause and effect and making that link and really they're going right. What can what can all of us do about it? Mm. But for me also, and I think that's why you know it was so incredible to have the response to Blue Planet Two was okay. There there is an appetite to understand the ocean. There is there is a willingness to embrace that this world that is really alien to us. We can't we can't just go pootling around in it. We have to, all this kit, whether it's scuba diving gear, rebreathers, submersibles. You know, we've got to arm ourselves to get in there and explore it and understand it. But what was so amazing was, but the world wants to do that, even if they're not going to get the gear on then they're going to do it through their television mm. and listen to these amazing stories of the creatures that are in it and these incredible worlds and our impact and I think you know for me obviously my passion is that this just keeps getting communicated that the world really does still want to hear what's happening with the ocean and why is it important why why should I care well because mm. we don't have a decent ocean mm. with loads of life in it can't just have the water we've got to have all the animals mm. all the ecosystems if we don't have that we're we're done mm. for <laughs> i think about the the idea of science and scientists and it feels like what's important about what you do is that you humanize all these findings you kind of you give it heart and you give it soul and and you allow people to feel emotions about it do you feel like that is maybe the most effective way going forward to, to have people understand and care in the way that you do about the ocean I th I think so I mean I think I think having that having that emotional connection is essential uh, Jacques yeah. Cousteau said it you know you you only care about what you love and of course he was talking about mm. the ocean and it's it's mm. so utterly true so we're truly doomed if we don't care if we don't care about our forests if we don't care about our deserts if we don't care about all of it yeah it's essential it's utterly essential to 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 help communicate why we should care and and offer up ways to offer up that engagement how how you can start to connect even if you've never ever never even been swimming or snorkeling doesn't mean you can't connect with that world and I think that's you know us as an actual history unit bringing that world into people's living rooms on a Sunday night on a whatever night whether it's you know spring watch and what's going on in your backyard yeah what do you think is the biggest challenge moving forwards I think it's it's really it's it's finding that way to help our world have the will to make it all happen and it's all of us finding our way of trying to get on board with that and trying to trying to encourage that you know for us the, the way the way I do that is by doing what I do and trying to put the natural world out there and that's what all of us at the natural history unit are doing day in day out it's just like, look look at this look at this isn't it amazing isn't it really special isn't it actually really important and keeping our yeah. planet healthy and alive so it's, it's doing doing what we can to to help yeah. speed speed things up here uh, I wanted to ask you about what you felt the listeners of this podcast could do people will want to walk away thinking well, what can I do apart from recycle more and try not to buy plastic you know what can I do and you talked about stuff I'm interested in that yeah stuff is a really um uh, <laughs> our lives with stuff um my stuff got reduced to what could fit in 
ate milk crates underneath my bunk for nine years. That was my stuff. And it was so liberating and so um, mm. amazing to live a life without huge amounts of stuff. And, you know, I've been back on dry land now for 10 years and I have filled a house with more stuff. And to me, that's just, you know, kind of um, awful, actually, because every single piece of stuff in my house has come at a price to the planet. And I just think that our, our relationship with stuff has got to change. And so what can we all do? We can think about that. We can reduce our mm. stuff. It's all very well mm. recycling, but how about having less of it in the first place? Mm. But I think also it's about... Uh, it's about what can we do as individuals, but it's also how can we all get involved to um, make a bigger change because it's going to take um, systemic change, truly systemic change to to repair. Yeah, like even when you go to the supermarket now, right, and you want to buy a whole week's worth of groceries, it's impossible without buying plastic. It's yeah. So it's kind of like it has to come from the boardrooms right where people make a decision on high that that is not how they're going to yeah package yeah things. I do and I do I do I hold out great hope that there is a sort of an an enlightenment is is on its way and that you know companies corporations um governments are going yeah. to realize that actually they're going to win by making change sure and I think yeah. that I think that is truly possible. And I think that's that is potentially about to happen. There are corporations making super bold statements about what their approach is. And it's new and revolutionary and it's really exciting. And if that does and can can it can catch on if we're all screaming and shouting enough, um, then then that's you know, that's that's incredible. So there's there's still there's hope, there's possibility but there's also urgency. Or like um, Blue Planet 2 was the biggest watched television show in 2017. According to YouGov, the fourth most watched TV show in the UK ever. Where do you go after that? What are you, what are you working on now? I'm involved in, in two other super ambitious large-scale projects at the Natural History Unit. One is Frozen Planet 2. So we're revisiting um, the the frozen parts of our planet and you know finding incredible stories and I can't tell you about any of it Annie because it's all under apps <laughs> so just sit tight there and are you out and about are you on are you out there yeah I I have been yeah um, uh, I'm making a, a an episode about Antarctica so we've been doing some really really spectacular filming there. And wow. um, I'm also making a, a series about ocean exploration. So an amazing um, combination of exploration of parts of our ocean that we really don't know through the eyes of some really um, brave and wonderful, uh, super exciting explorers and combining their experiences at the, at the coalface of exploration with their encounters with the natural history. So in many ways, it's, it's, it's moving on um, from the pure natural history side of Blue Planet 2 and now bringing in the yeah. human, a, a truly human story. And, a, and, a, and again, another way for an audience to yeah. emotionally engage um, with the ocean. So, yeah, two, mm. two super, super demanding, super exciting projects. Yeah. I have to ask you, um, with Planet Earth, a celebration being out a couple of weeks ago and kind of reigniting everyone's love for the series 
What's it like to sit and work with David Attenborough and to kind of help him, <laughs> you know, work together to figure out the narration of that series? It's it's incredible and amazing. It's it's exa- I mean, all all I can say is it's, it's exactly as you would hope and think it would be. Um, yeah. It's it's extraordinary. Um, when we were making the 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 final episode, Mark, the series producer, and myself went went up to see him to talk him through our our intentions of you know this is these are the stories that we think we need to tell in this final episode to to show our mm. our impact on the ocean. And it I I felt like I was sitting an exam. Because the questions he was asking me about, so ocean acidification, is it da-da-da-da-da-da-da? And he was getting into chemical equations. And luckily, I happened to have a degree in chemistry, so I could feel these questions. But it really, you know, we, we got a full-on proper interrogation, which was just so um, wonderful because that's exactly what he brings is this, you know, super analytical mind and his years and years and years of experience and putting that together um, was just fabulous. Last question, Orla. You said earlier, you kind of uh, mentioned that you would happily live under the sea. (laughs) Would you really, if I said there's a submersible ready for you next week, off you go, that's it? Yep, really. Really? You wouldn't miss you wouldn't miss the the Earth's surface at all. No, no. Dry land. No. Would you need to um, be able to contact people? Yeah, I think I would. Maybe maybe could I bob up to the surface and do the odd zoom with my mum? Would that be all right? That would be fine. That <laughs> okay. would be totally fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Done deal. <laughs> Done. No, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not joking. I think a psychotherapist could have a field view with that. <laughs> That's a whole other That's a whole other Zoom. (laughs) Orla, thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thanks, Annie. Thank you so much to Orla. I kind of wanted to ask her at the end if I could go for a trip in a submersible with her, but I wasn't brave enough. I really, really enjoyed talking to her. And I liked that when she mentioned at the end about just going on a trip to the moon, that she would like to do that. And it occurred to me that the where she's been in the world going on a trip to the moon wouldn't be all that unique or or, or special for her uh, because she's seen these deep pockets of the world that no one has seen before so a little trip to the moon is like all right she could do that uh what a brave and courageous and brilliant woman if you haven't yet go and watch planet earth a celebration on bbc iplayer which features some of orla's award-winning work from blue planet 2 Thank you so much for listening to this very special episode of Changes and to Mercedes, the sponsors of this episode, the Mercedes-Benz A-Class, which is now available as a plug-in hybrid with an all-electric range of up to 44 miles. I am going to be back on Monday with the incredible Beth Ditto. What a life she has led, what change she has gone through. If you subscribe to the podcast, you will be notified as soon as an episode drops. So please go do that and please let me know how you feel about the podcast on Instagram, and go and review it uh, anywhere you fancy it's so good to get your reactions it makes me so happy to see what you are enjoying and not enjoying about the podcast so this episode was produced by louise mason with support from matt hill through we think audio i will be back next week take care <laughs>